and this evening will be in verses 11 through 16, and then 20 and 21. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Lord, as we read these closing words here of First Timothy, we pray that these words would inspire us the way it did Timothy, would encourage us and convict us the way it did to Timothy, that we who have the very same spirit that the very first hearers of this epistle have within us would cause us to heed these words, love these words, and be moved by them. There's good commands here. There's good instruction. There's words that lead to life here. And Lord, we pray that as we hear from them, Lord, that they would do just that within us. So help us to that end. And we praise you and glorify you for the amazing grace that you've given to us, Lord. In your name, amen. Most of this epistle has been um, the work of defense. The gospel has been attacked. Theology and error, pardon me, errored theology has come into the church and has begun influencing the people of God there within the church. And repeatedly, over and over, Paul has had to give instructions to Timothy to avoid things, to contradict things. Here's how to fight these particular fights. And here he ends this epistle in the very same way that the whole epistle has been encompassed, and that's continue to keep on fighting and flee from these particular things. But there is an important distinction here, and it begins in verse 13. Let me show you that first. I charge you... Right? I command you, I encourage you, I 
telling you what it behooves you to do in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment. And he goes on from there and we'll come back to that. The reason why we start here is because I want you to see that what he does, he charges you, charges me, charges Timothy in the presence of God and Jesus Christ. This is very, very important. Gus and I were talking a little bit about this earlier today. The imperative always is based upon the indicative. If you don't know what that means, that's okay. I'm about to explain it. The imperative is always based on the indicative. What that means is that when you are commanded to do something, it's always based upon a greater foundation. Law doesn't precede the gospel. The gospel is what motivates any type of action that we do or that we have. The law doesn't come first. The gospel does. You, as a Christian, oftentimes we think that what Christianity is, is it's a set of rules. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And while there is an element of Christianity where indeed we do desire to obey the Lord, that is not the basis. That is not what Christianity is. Christianity is faith in God Because he gave us the gospel in his son, Jesus Christ. Christianity is things we believe, not actions we perform. Christianity is faith in truth, not I'm going to do all of this stuff. Now we get told, I hear the caricature all the time. I'm just, just yesterday I'm listening to a podcast and he's talking about Christians in this negative light and he's saying how stupid and idiotic we are because of all these rules and things that we have and I'm just thinking ah you don't even understand Christianity but can I I, I, partly it's because the church gets it wrong that this other guy who isn't even a Christian gets it wrong the church gets it wrong because we oftentimes in the church hear these indicatives We hear, pardon me, these imperatives to do, 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 work, 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 do this, do this, do this, act like this, don't do this, you should be this in this certain way at this certain time. And we hear these things and we think that's what it means to be a Christian is I do this, I look like this, I act like this, I dress like this, I talk like this, I, you know, all of these things. It's all about my actions and how I live my life. Instead of, I don't have a life except Christ gave me one. And I live by grace and faith in that. And anything that I do simply flows from the faith and the confidence I have in Jesus Christ. I saw a funny little meme this week. It had Pinky in the brain. You remember them? And what, what the famous thing is, what are we going to do today? We're going to conquer the world, right? That's the the whole thing. And then the whole episode would be about them trying to conquer the world. Well, this little meme said, what are we going to do today? And it said, we're going to repent and believe the gospel. That's Christianity right there. Repentance and belief in the gospel. 
Repentance means I'm confessing my sin. I'm regularly confessing my sin. I'm regularly trusting and having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm believing the gospel. Anything else, anything else, anything else is bonus. The gospel of Jesus Christ is simple and it's this. It's that we are sinners. We've fallen in Adam. Our federal head, our, the boss of our life is Adam. <laughs> And he has plunged us into sin and therefore under the judgment of God. And we have no hope to escape that judgment, that righteous judgment, unless somehow our unrighteousness has been satisfied before the throne of God. And that unrighteousness is satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. Which is why here he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and Christ Jesus in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. The confession was that he was king of kings and lord of lords. That he came to seek and save that which was lost. That he came to bring life to those who were dead. He came to be the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Those truths we believe, those truths we hold dear, those truths are what make you a Christian, believing in those and repenting, not voting Republican. Right? Not dressing a certain particular way, not only listening to Caleb. Not all, there's all kinds of things that people say, this is what makes you Christian. Or you subtly equate this with Christianity. But beloved, that's not what Christianity is. Christians are people who believe in Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, repent of their sins, and love God. And all the other stuff comes along. But there's all kinds of different, various people who are Christians who believe and trust these truths. The kingdom of God is very diverse. Which is why a message like this can be preached here as it can be in Tonga, as it can be in South Africa, as it can be in New Zealand, as it can be in Iraq, as it can be in North Korea. This same message preaches everywhere because it isn't about what you do, it's about who you believe and who you trust in. God created all people and all people have fallen in Adam. Therefore, all people are people who can and should be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the only means by which anybody can be saved. The name of Jesus Christ. He is the good and faithful savior of all people's souls. So when Paul comes back to Timothy and tells him, I'm charging you to do these things, he does it on the basis of God and Jesus Christ, he bases it on everything that God has done for us. So he says, I charge you, Timothy, to keep the commandment based upon everything that God has done for you. So it isn't as if Timothy is meriting righteousness or is meriting favor or is getting, you know, more love points from God or something along those lines. He has everything he could possibly have in the person of Jesus Christ because of his salvation. And now because God has done so much for you, here's how to live in light of that. So it's very different than you do this and it makes you a Christian. We believe and trust and out of that flows our actions and our life. So the commandment that we keep is based upon all of the work that God has done. Christianity is not law. Christianity is not duty. It is not obligation. 
It is faith and it is trust in him. And because of his great salvation for me and my love for all the work that he's done, that's what motivates me to do anything, right? It's like a marriage. What motivates me to do stuff for Andy? My love for her, right? Last night I'm driving home. I'm going to tell a story, wife, okay? I'm driving home and I go, man, you know it would be really good? I want one of the McFlurries. Ooh, I like those guys. I'm like, give me one. So I'm pulling into the McDonald's there, and I'm thinking, hey, you know who else wants a McFlurry, I bet? I bet it's my wife. So I'm thinking, I'll just text her and ask her what kind. And then I go, oh, no, 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 sneaky pat. What better way to do it than to not tell her and just show up and say, here, I love you. Look at the delight I got you. It's a treat. What do you think, wife, right? I do that because I love her. I don't do that because I'm like, Oh my gosh, <sighs> got to get Andy something nice because I know if I don't, I'm going to come home and be me, 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 right? It's nothing ever like that. It's just because I love her. I do things out of my love for her, right? It's not just obligation. It's such a different way of thinking. And that's the way Christianity is supposed to be. So when Paul here says, I charge you to keep the commandment, what we don't want to do is fall in the trap of like, okay, here's just another thing I got to do. This is a pep talk by his coach. Okay. This is an encouragement from somebody who wants to see him succeed and thinks the best for him. He's saying, look, you can do this because of what God has done for you. Now get out there and just love him and act like it and just show the world how much you love him. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I charge you because of God's love for you to do these things. It's a motivation for an encouragement life of acting in love towards God and towards other people. So back up to verse 11. So everything he says from here on out is framed in that, okay? You need to hear it in that, otherwise you're going to hear, oh, here's just another box for me to tick as my righteousness. Here's another box for me to tick as a Christian. And it shouldn't be that. It should be, all right, God and Christ have done so much. Therefore, now here's how and here's ways that I can love him in return. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness. And he goes on from there. Paul does this a lot. He doesn't just do it in his general epistles, but he does. But he also does it in all of the pastoral epistles. In 2 Timothy and in Titus, he says, flee something and pursue something. So run away from something and run towards something else. Here he says, flee these things. Well, unless you've read the entire book, that's unhelpful. (laughs) But first thing he says is, oh, man of God. That's in contrast to what we looked at two weeks ago. Oh, man who loves money. Right? The person who loves money falls into sin. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Remember, we looked at that passage there. So it's opposed to that. You're not the man of money. You're a man of God. You're not a man who loves materialism. You're the man who loves God. So what is he calling him to flee? The love of the material, the love of just possessions, the love of stuff. He's saying flee covetousness. Basically, if we want to say it positively, positively, 
we could say, obey the 10th commandment. O man of God, obey the 10th commandment. So he's to flee those things and instead pursue these things. These things aren't material. These are things that you can't just go out and you can't purchase these things, right? You're playing any kind of video games. You can't, these aren't like quests that you can go on so that you can level up kind of thing. This is just lifestyles that we're supposed to have as Christians as we pursue God in love, as we pursue God in his grace, as we pursue God in faith and repentance. This, this is what our life is going to look like. So pursue these things. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now this isn't a comprehensive list, right? Galatians chapter 5 has the fruit of the Spirit. You're all probably familiar with it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's not a comprehensive list either. It's helpful, and it's very good to study those things. But what he's saying here is pursue the things that are like Christ. Pursue Christ's likeness, right? Was Christ righteous? In every way. He was completely set apart. He was unique and distinct. Our righteousness comes from him. So as we pursue righteousness, what we're pursuing is we're pursuing a life that is like Christ's. We want to be more like him. In Philippians chapter 3, in verse 9, it says, Be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness that is of your own, or Paul says of my own, that comes from the law, Right? Not about law, it's about gospel. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. We want to be found in him righteously. And that's not a righteousness of our own. It's not by the law. That's usually what you think of. Righteousness means a lot of works to do. But no, the righteousness comes from God because we're united to Christ. So how do we pursue that? Well, how we pursue it is we study Jesus more. And the more we study Jesus, the more we become like him. The more we look at him and his word, the more we read the Bible and we pray, and the more we become like him. So it isn't duty and obligation. It's we want to become more like Christ. And godliness, we want to be more like God. I want to like the things God likes. I want to love the things God likes. So I want to read the Bible and I see that he's long-suffering. So I need to be patient. I want to learn to be long-suffering in a manner that God is. I see that he's gracious and that he's kind. He's merciful to the thousands of generations. So how can I learn those things? Well, I learn them through humility and realizing I am not like God and I need God's strength in order to become more and more like him. Through faith. One of the things that, to me, this might not apply to anybody else. Sometimes I'm just preaching to myself. But to me, working in a funeral home, 
and seeing people die has made me really think about faith. Because here previously a person was up walking and talking and breathing and thinking and moving and functioning and emoting and all of the things that people do. And then they're not. The part we see that we recognize is still there. But yet they're not there. Where did they go? That they're gone, but this that I recognize is still there. That takes faith, frankly, to believe there's a God and to trust that he has given every single one of us life and our life is really immaterial. It's not really flesh and blood and watches and shirts and pulpits and Bibles and iPhones or whatever, but life is really the immaterial part of us. And so if I'm going to pursue faith, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to believe what it says about people. And I'm going to believe what it says about me. So when I see that particular person and I wrestle with, where is that person now? It forces me back into God's word and it forces me to see and to say, well, I know where that person is with some level of confidence. They're before the Lord in one way or another, perhaps. Hopefully not in judgment. Hopefully they're worshiping with him. They're praising him for all eternity like Revelation teaches us. But how do we grow in faith? How do we pursue faith? We read the Bible and we believe it. We read the Bible and we believe it. We pray. Praying is a weird, weird, bizarre act if you don't have faith. But people will say they'll pray about all kinds of things, right? People who aren't even Christians will, you know, something bad will happen and they'll be like, oh, prayer's headed your way, which is weird in and of itself. Why are you shooting your prayers at me? Don't do that. They go to God. But whatever, I get it. But they're okay to say pray. They're going to pray. Instinctively, intuitively, we're spiritual people and therefore we will respond spiritually in cataclysmic, traumatic circumstances and situations. By faith, we pray to God, the God of Scripture. So how do we pursue faith? Through reading the Bible, through prayer. Those are great ways to pursue faith, to follow after him in faith, in love. Love is a word that is thrown around so much, it almost loses its definition and its meaning. Love means that if I am pursuing love and I'm pursuing it in a way that Paul is talking about here, I'm going to look and find those things that God loves and I'm going to pursue loving those things. So the very first and most important thing God loves is himself. And it's right and true that he does that because there's no greater being than him. And his being is so perfect and so righteous and so just, it would be absolutely inappropriate for him to not love himself. It makes perfect sense for him to love himself. And so I am going to love God if I'm going to pursue love in a way that God says he is loving. Secondly, I'm going to pursue loving people. I'm going to pursue loving all kinds of people. Christ oftentimes loved and showed acts of loves in ways that was kind of indiscriminate. 
But then he did discriminate in lots of different ways. He would pull his disciples aside and he loved them in a unique and distinct way than he loved everybody else, right? So it's right and appropriate that I do that. Again, my wife, it's, it'd be really weird if I loved all of you the way I love my wife. That'd be bizarre. So if I'm going to pursue biblical love, it means that I'm going to pursue a love that distinguishes and differentiates and acts appropriately in every single situation that I find myself in, right? So I'm going to love Charlotte by sitting on the floor and playing Peppa Pig with her, right? I can't stand Peppa. She's not here, so she won't know. That show is annoying. But man, you know what? She can wrap hands. Don't, don't say anything. She got these little things, and so I'm going to sit on the floor. And I'm going to play Peppa Pig with her, and I'm going to talk with a little British accent. Ooh, Peppa, you know, with the father and the grandpa. I'm going to do that, right? But Hope, if I did that with Hope, she's going to roll her eyes and go lock herself in a room for three days and never talk to me. <laughs> Because it's different, right? I different kinds in different ways. So we get that on a regular, just normal family dynamic, right? If it's true there, if it's true with God, if it's true with Christ, then it's true in every single arena and situation. Therefore, if we're going to love rightly, it's going to take disciplined thought. Not just work, not just actions, but thought. Because maybe I'm going to love somebody in a way that is going to be perceived by other people as harsh and hardcore. And some people aren't going to understand in a way that I am going to show love to somebody. It might be loving for me not to give money to somebody who is asking me for money. It might be loving for me to withhold something from somebody. It might be loving for me to come to somebody and say a hard word that's going to make them feel absolutely terrible. But it might be the most loving thing to do. That takes hard work, both mentally, emotionally. We have to pursue it. It isn't something that just ishy-squishy flows out from us. Steadfastness. Does anybody else's Bible say something different? Everybody say steadfastness. Endurance is a better word. Endurance. Pursue endurance. Christianity, walking with the Lord, is not a sprint. It is a slog. It is taking one foot and putting it in front of another and going on and 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 on for all of our life. We are in need of endurance. There is no, there's no microwave Christianity. There's no popping the hot pocket of Jesus in, pressing the minute and 38 seconds and you get Jesus come out the hot pocket. Yay, I'm Christian. There's none of that. It is work and work and work. And if you're a Christian, you're in it for the long haul. Right? You are going to have a hard time with life. Life is just difficult because sin is still in this world and sin still in you. And because sin is still in you and sin is in this world, you're constantly bumping into and dealing with other sinners. And that's going to make life extremely difficult. And it's not going to end until you're dead. So you have need of endurance. 
That means you need to pursue all of these things regularly and practice and work them out because as you work out more, you get stronger. And so the working out of these things means that you're going to be able to endure more as you grow older. I think, I think, don't want to speak, overspeak or be presumptuous. I think I'm a little more patient now than I used to be. I think I'm a little better now than I used to be. And that's as Christians what it should be. We should grow in endurance, realizing, okay, we haven't arrived yet. What I thought was going to happen didn't happen. What I prayed about, God didn't give me in his grace. Thank you, Lord, maybe some of those prayers, right? And I grow in patience and endurance because I see God is not in a hurry. There are very, very few places in scripture where he's actually in a hurry. One would be Moses when he's there on the the sea and he's supposed to stick his staff in and the sea's supposed to part. Do you remember that story? He gets out there and he knows what he's supposed to do, so he stops and he prays. And God says, "Get up. what are you doing? Get up and stick that thing in the water. Right? You read, Efe- you read Exodus recently, that's what it says. <laughs> but he tells him, go. No, now is not the time to pray. Now is the time for action. But that's so rare. God spends 400 years in between these testaments and doesn't say anything to anybody, not a word from a prophet. All they have is the Old Testament, which is plenty, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying all they have is. I'm saying they had no new, they had no prophet coming. As it was, God was silent for four. God is not in a hurry, and you shouldn't be either. God knows what he's doing with you. He's getting you exactly where he wants you to go. So be patient and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, and love, and gentleness. Brings us to our last one. Gentleness. Jesus was... Well, I almost said example, but he's not that. He, he is embodied gentleness. And I think gentleness is both tough and tender, right? There, there's, there's a sense where, you, where Jesus was very insistent about sin to the woman who's caught in adultery, don't do that again. But yet he's gentle with her and he says, I don't condemn you either. Do you, do you see? Does that make sense? He is gentle in that he is Tough when it needs to be tough, but yet it's very tempered and it's metered. It's never out of control. It's right and it's exacting. And gentleness for us as Christians need to be the same. We can be, again, too ishy-squishy. We need to be exacting and right and accurate about our exhibition of gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. There are errors that are going to come up in the church, and we need to aggressively put them down. There have been doctrinal fights all throughout the church history, most of them stupid and petty and idiotic. But there have been enough really good ones that actually matter. We can look back at certain councils like Orange and Chalcedon and Nicaea, and we can look at these church councils where they were dealing with these major, major issues. We can see the Reformation and how important that was to oppose Rome and its tyranny against people. 
We can see these things and realize those were fights that had to happen. And beloved, know this, they're going to continue. They're not going to let up. So there's going to come a time and a place where we are going to have to fight the good fight. The way we prepare it is, again, we read the Bible. We believe it in faithfulness. We trust in him. We trust what his word says. And we look to him and his revelation to lead and to guide us. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in front of many witnesses. Timothy, God bless him. he's, He's a tender guy, right? He's a little sweetheart of a fella. We'll see when we get to 2 Timothy, he was fearful all the time and Paul had to calm those fears again. What he needs is to take hold of eternal life to which you were called. There's so many things that happen in our life that if you are not confident in the eternal life you've been given, the eternal security of the believer in Jesus Christ, man, that could get you shipwrecked. You could go, I, and there's, there have been people in my life who I've known who an incident has happened and they're just gone in terms of their faith. And they maybe don't come back or maybe it takes them a decade to get back trusting and walking with the Lord. Well, a big part of that is that they have not regularly been taking hold of eternal life to which we're called. Preach the gospel to yourselves. Preach the gospel to yourselves. We need to hear it over and over and over. The gospel is for believers every bit as much as it is for unbelievers. We need to regularly be going back and reminding ourselves of the gospel and of Christ's glorious death for us. Now, jump down to verse 14. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, the second coming of Christ was always eminent in Paul's mind, and he's not talking about the rapture. Like a secret mystery rapture, right? Like there's all of a sudden, whoa, everyone's gone, and, but we're still here, and there's seven years. Whoa, this is bad. It's not that. He's talking about literally the second coming of Christ happening at any moment. This is a motivating factor that Paul puts in front of Timothy, and we should live in light of that. I'll be honest, when I, I don't think about this, reg- I need to be regularly thinking about it more. Part of it is maybe a knee-jerk reaction against the old dispensationalism that I came out of. But the second coming of Christ is eminent, and it is a motivating factor. I should be thinking every once, more than every once in a while, I should be thinking regularly when I get up in the morning, Lord, perhaps today. Not the rapture, but his return and bringing an end to all things. It could happen today. And do I want to be that person who is found not doing what the Lord has commanded me to do? Slacking. Not fleeing the things that Paul refers to. Not pursuing the things that Paul refers to. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming, which he will display at the proper time. And then Paul, uh, believe me, someday I will probably do this, but I want to come back and just phrase by phrase preach through this glorious doxology. This is hot dog stuff right here, man. This is amazing. He who is the blessed, the only sovereign, 
the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I'm just as guilty as other preachers, but there is not enough attention paid to doxologies, to big, glorious truths like this. Why do I say that? Because when I read the book of Revelation and I see what it's going to be like in heaven, this is the kind of stuff we're saying. We're singing. We're celebrating. We're rejoicing. This is the kind of stuff we're talking about to the Lord. We're worshiping him because we are ascribing to him everything that is his, that is due his name, that he deserves in all of our praise and all of our worship. So I have verses here, but... I. We don't have time to go through every single thing here, doggone it. But maybe an Attributes of God series is needed, maybe. But he, God, who is the blessed. You know, there's that wonderful passage in Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, those Beatitudes. And blessed is this person, blessed is this person, blessed is this person, Right? Well, God is the one who is blessed. And the only reason anyone can make claim of any type of blessing is because God himself is blessed in the first place. And then he gives to us blessings that flow from him, right? Only sovereign, king of kings and lord of lords. He is in absolute control of everything. There is not an atom in the entire universe that is a maverick molecule, I've heard it said. I think by R.C. Sproul. Just out there doing its own thing. Everything is happening because God has commanded it to be so. He is sovereign over every single event, over every single item, over every single particle. Everything in the entire universe, from the greatest of kingdoms to the tiniest of microscopic things, he is sovereign over. He is king over it. He is lord over it. And he alone has immortality. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There is only life in him. There is no death for God. And he dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen nor can see. He had to condescend and come down and become one of us in order to save us from our sins. If he's going to reveal himself to us again, he is going to stoop low and he's going to talk baby talk to us because we can't understand the glorious truths that are in God. That's why heaven is forever, you know? It's going to take forever for us to learn about God, for him to show us all that he is. It's going to take forever. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Oh, Timothy. Oh, sovereign joy. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard the gospel. Guard the truth. Guard theology. Guard the things we believe. Oh, beloved, be jealous for them. Hold on to them dearly. 
Don't let them slip out of your hands. Guard them, defend them, believe them, embrace them. Tie them around your neck. You know, Proverbs talks about, I'm wearing these truths around my neck. That's what we should be. When you see us, you see gospel truth. We guard them. We covet them. We keep them close to our heart. And avoid irreverent babble and contradictions about what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, the irreverent babble and contradictions, some have swerved from the faith. Beloved, Grace be with you. What a fitting way to end this particular book. Grace be with you. There's nothing else better than grace. Nothing else better than grace. Amazing grace doesn't do it justice. The fact that I... a violent agnostic of a rebel sinner who would have spat in God's face if I had him standing in front of me, not in unapproachable light that I could never see, but having him already condescended, I would have done it. Which is ironic because it only proves his existence, doesn't it? And that's another thing. That he would see fit to save me from my sins. And then for his, I want to say crazy, but it's not crazy. It's perfectly righteous. But his plans and purposes called me to pastor. This blows me. I don't, I don't get it. The grace that God has shown to me is remarkable. It's remarkable in the depths of the nature of my undeservedness. Well, that's what makes it grace, isn't it? I think all of us can understand and see how screwed up we really are. How bad off we really are. But he has given us grace. Beloved, we, by grace, have anything. By his grace, he has given us everything in him. And I pray that this grace that he's given to each and every one of us would continue to be with us. We'd extend it to one another we'd rejoice and glory in it and that we would point each other to the God of all grace because we're going to need it regularly and often. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this word of truth that you've given to us here in your Bible. This holy book that contains your revelation that you've given to us. As we finish up this book of 1 Timothy, we are encouraged by the fact that it is not by works that we stand before you, but by grace, by gospel, by love. We stand by faith, Lord, in this place of being before your presence. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take all of this that we have heard both tonight and throughout this book of 1 Timothy, And may we go from here seeking to serve you, to love you, to follow you, all because of the gospel and the grace that you've given to us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your care. In Jesus' name, amen.